Hello and welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast of all the best talks, interviews and ideas direct from the stages and studios of the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. Working between two cultures is something that my guest today has grown up with. Born in America to a family of refugees from the Iranian Revolution, Azadeh Moavani has split her life between the Middle East and the West. As a journalist, she has worked for publications like Time magazine and the LA Times in cities like Tehran and Cairo, and her books include memoirs and deep investigations. She visited the Sydney Opera House for the All About Women Festival. Azadeh Moavani, welcome to Ideas at the House. Thanks for having me with you. So you were born in the United States, but that's not the beginning of the story, is it? What sort of family were you born into? My family were from Iran originally. Both of my parents were of that generation of of young Iranians who in the 60s, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, had come to the United States to to study. So they were of that generation that intended to, you know, have Western training and then go back to Iran and kind of, you know, help build modern Iran. Um, And then, of course, the 1979 revolution happened. So we were very much one of these families that were accidentally ended up living in the United States. So we always had our heads in Iran, following events in Iran. You know, I grew up very much feeling of two cultures, allegiances to two countries, and a little bit sort of uncertain what I was, could you be American? And and another thing, especially when that other country um, had this really sharp historical enmity with the United States. So I think I grew up in a milieu that almost sort of destined for me, uh, the path that I ended up taking, which is to make sense of all of that. (laughs) Yes. So your parents, you know, having come and studied from Iran to the States, that suggests that their families had a sort of affluence that enabled that. How did that position their families when the revolution came in 1979? So we were of the class that was rejected by the new revolutionary order. We were seen as the technocratic, affluent, modernized, westernized uh, class that had benefited and flourished under the previous regime uh, of the Shah and that there was no place for us in the new order. So all of our properties were confiscated. My uncle went to prison for a time. Um, You know, he'd been one of the, you know, developers of modern Tehran as we know it, and then had to escape. So, you know, from the perspective of women, I mean, I came from a family where I was a third generation to have an education and work. Even, you know, my grandmother was a midwife and and worked. Um, But we were of a secular, kind of technocratic, upper middle class background. And so the Iran that my mother was born into before the revolution had a lot of inclusion and space for us, but we were not widely representative. I mean, there was a big majority of the country, women, very traditional, very religious, who felt certainly marginal or excluded. So in a way, then things flipped. Then we became, there was no space for us Mm. afterwards. And for your grandparents, that meant that what was intended as a kind of short period in the United States became permanent exile. How did they deal with that? They arrived in the US at an age where 
becoming or learning the language or changing didn't even enter their minds. They were just elderly. And so they lived in a bubble. They lived in an immigrant bubble surrounded by other elderly people like themselves. Elderly Iranians. Elderly Iranians, exactly. They congregated together. They had, you know, poetry reading classes. And it was it was very much a part. So I remember sort of, you know, coming home from school and, and going to my grandmother. And it was like going to Iran. I mean, everything inside that house was another country. Mm. And it was very wistful because I think they felt completely dislocated. Mm. You talk about your grandfather... Agajun and his garden and your grandmother and her kitchen. How did those two domains connect them with their homeland? So it was, I think, remaining alive and connected through those physical things that you could recreate anywhere. So my grandfather grew these flowers that are very popular in Iran. I forget what they're called in English. So these very sturdy, bright flowers. And and he would water them sort of as a ritual every day. I think in the manner that I would imagine him if he was back in Tehran, he would go to a cafe and read the newspaper or go for a walk in the club. He just walked outside and tended these flowers. He loved literature and, and flowers have such a important role in Persian poetry, in, in the carpets. I mean, they have a sort of spiritual aesthetic role for us as well as Persians. And my grandmother, you know, she kept the living room as a place where we could all gather. And it was a time where, you know, that sort of cooking was also futile in a way. Mm. You know, you had to have a leisurely landed class that was able to spend six hours stirring a saffron pudding that needed to be stirred for six hours, Mm. which she probably wouldn't have done herself, but did so that we would still all have things tasting what our lives would have been like had we not ended up where we were. You, you, you say that she controlled things through, I think, purity of the palate, this kind of use of food as a reminder of yes. a different culture. Yes, it's very binding. And, and I realise now myself I'm doing that with my children. <laughs> Your parents met in the United States. What was their relationship founded on, do you think, initially? Uh, well, I think it was both a meeting of the minds and also a sort of traditional seeking out my mother was shockingly beautiful, so she was sort of sought after by sort of many of the, the young men in, in that circle. But she was also very willful and educated and wanted to have a cerebral, non-conventional life. And my father was also a bit of an intellectual. He was a leftist. He, you know, he was the black sheep of his own family. They also, I think, found in each other sort of a kindred spirit that wouldn't want to live in a completely conventional way. Mm-hmm. So your mother chose to divorce your father when you were a baby. What do you think precipitated that decision for her? I think she realised quite early that they had some very intractable personality differences. And she certainly wasn't the sort who could adjust and sort of live for the sake of the children, as so many did. I think in the wider community around us kind of this topsy-turviness of having been an exile or immigrated, I think sort of created more space for women who wanted to divorce. Partly, I think immigration impacted men and women very differently and men often very struggled if they couldn't find work and that created troubles in the marriage. I think the idea of being able to move also gave people some space. So the situation of kind of being away from Iran um, and going through this big transition, I think encouraged, normalized, made divorce more acceptable. Mm -hmm. Your mother is an extraordinary figure. 
You say that she took her values from both cultures, American and Iranian cultures, like she was in a grocery store. And, you know, at the same time, she was experimenting with Hinduism and Buddhism and I believe briefly Mormonism. And what was she looking for? She was a spiritual seeker. But I think because she was so educated and rebellious in her own way. I think it didn't occur to her to start with the religion that she'd been born into because that would have been so conventional. And also she had a very restless soul and she was very creative, I think, and never really found an outlet for it. So in a way, I think if she had painted or wrote or found some other way to express that and to kind of deal with her pain, perhaps she wouldn't have been so intent on finding, you know, a spiritual compartment for it. What sort of pain? I think... The pain of her marriage not having worked, the pain of kind of having to build a career as a single mother in a country that was not her own, where she couldn't rely on networks and status and, you know, family and friends in the same way. I think the pain and difficulty of being a single mother, which is so lonely and hard. And also she, I think, She was someone missing a couple layers of skin. Mm. So even watching the news was painful for her. And maybe there was some merging of all that internal upset with, you know, whatever it was, whatever war we were watching on television. Um, So I think all of this together made her just quite emotionally intense. You came into conflict with her quite a lot when you were a teenager, which, you know, of course, is not at all unusual for a teenage girl, particularly, I imagine, of a single mother. But there seems to be a kind of funny tension with her between more liberal American political values and more traditional Iranian values when it came to the home and particularly your behaviour. How did that sort of manifest in your relationship? So we were just constantly at odds, whether it was tension over that skirt is too short, you know, what are you thinking wearing these clothes? And I felt quite constricted. I think she was just struggling to stay in some sort of control of me as much as it was values. But then, you know, it's interesting now, you know, once I moved to Iran uh, as a reporter in my early 20s and started spending time with our family there who were much looser with their daughters. And I remember ringing her up saying, you're out of touch, you know, here, even in Iran, like everyone lets their daughters go out and like you should see the lifestyles they have. So I think she was doing the quite conventional diaspora thing where, you know, the community that leaves ends up just locking itself in, in kind of defensive paralysis. But also kind of staying in a time that the rest of the home country has moved beyond. Exactly, exactly. And I see it now in the UK with the Pakistani families who emigrated in the 50s and 60s from these villages and back home, everything is moving on and they are locked in the 50s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you really associated that kind of restriction that your mother was placing around you with Iranianness at that time. I did. I did. And so it made me quite ambivalent about it because it sort of came with a lot of heaviness. And I felt like I had to find my own pathway to Iranianness, studying it, working there independently, you know, Mm. like my own version. I mean, I think it's probably a pretty common experience of an immigrant kid to feel this need to assimilate. But Iranians in the 70s and 80s, sort of culturally in America, were really driven to assimilate, weren't they? Like this was kind of a theme. It really was in a way that I find extraordinary. My uncles, for example, who emigrated in 
you know, after the revolution, I mean, they became so American. They sound American. Their mannerisms are American. And it's kind of almost poignant that it was possible, that, that they thought it was possible, those immigrating, and that the Americans around them kind of expected it or embraced it enough that it happened in this organic way. What made you decide to want to be a reporter? It was a choice I walked backwards into. I wasn't quite sure I wanted to be. I thought, maybe should I be a lawyer? Should I work for the UN? Should I do human rights? And I dabbled a little bit in all of that. I mean, I did internships here and there. And, you know, I did a stint at Human Rights Watch and did a stint at Think Tank and didn't like any of it. It just wasn't for me. And then when I moved to Cairo to study language, I did a Fulbright there. And then I got an internship on a newspaper. So in the newsroom in Cairo, I just felt like these are my people, the people who covered politics and the people who did books and the conversations were really alive. And I think this is my space because not only does it bring in the human rights and the diplomacy and the legal and the politics that I found appealing about all those other pathways, uh, but also at the very core of it, there was writing. And for me, that was immense and I needed to be able to write. In 1999, there was a sort of pivot for you, wasn't there? There was a student uprising in Iran and a lot of political movement at a time when there wasn't so much political movement more broadly in the Middle East. What did you do? So I remember sitting in one of these dusty offices in Cairo with my editor, who was an old activist, like a proper Egyptian lefty, who thought what was going on in Iran was the most exciting thing that the Middle East had seen in decades. And he said, why are you sitting here with me, you know, drinking coffee after coffee in this, you know, state newspaper? Get up and go to your country. You know, it seemed like at the time there was this reform movement that might have blended religion and politics and, you know, created more space for more inclusive politics, like all the conundrums that the region seemed to have not been able to solve, sort of veering between Islamist politics or just straight secular repression, dictatorship. In Iran, it seemed like everything was fermenting. And it was a rich moment, too, because there was the flourishing of this independent press. You know, every morning at kiosks, people would be buying four to five newspapers. I've never seen anything like it since um, in all the years. So I said, okay, you're right. I I should go. And so I just packed up my life in Cairo and I moved to Tehran and I started covering it. Because before that, you hadn't been back to Iran, save a short holiday when you were like five years old. But you'd also grown up with a grandmother's lounge room that was like stepping into a room in Tehran. So how did actual Tehran strike you when you arrived in your 20s? I was immediately besotted by it. Partly I was lucky because I was coming from Cairo and Cairo is very poor and In terms of development, even though Tehran had gone through these 20 years of isolation after the revolution, I found it a quite modern and developed city. So that was an exciting thing to discover. And people could tell the minute that I opened my mouth that I had come from abroad, that I was not like them. It wasn't just your accent either. I mean, it was the fact that you smiled too much or that you were too friendly or... Completely always, I was always felled by that. It took a long time to undo the physical social mannerisms of when you grow up in a Western country, I think. Um, In a way, the Me Too movement had made me think a lot about that and about wanting to shrink back a little bit and to have kind of more space and caution in, in your interactions with men so that there's more respect for what you do or do not 
you know, signal with your behaviour. Right. Because this happened to you as a young journalist, right, with colleagues and stuff that you would be friendly in a way that you regarded as collegiate, but which was constantly misread by male colleagues. Absolutely. And I think barring being completely sullen and sharp and evasive and refusing to socialise, you know, in a professional way, it was very hard to maintain any kind of obvious boundary that you did not want to have a non-professional relationship. Has Me Too hit Iran? You know, I think Me Too has hit Iran kind of consistently for a long time because the regime or the system's laws and its restrictions on women's access to public space and what they can and cannot wear in public, it's kind of pushed those issues to the front for years, really. You know, I think even when I moved to Iran, and certainly in the last decade, you see, you know, campaigns to ensure that there's no sexual harassment or unsafe touching on public transportation. Iranian workplaces to have codes around harassment at work or relationships at work. So because I think the order that emerged after the revolution was kind of religiously very conservative, but also had this parallel push for women to come into public space, be educated, come in, work. It was all unresolved. Mm. So in a way, that kind of contradictory tangle of intentions pushed these issues to the fore very early in Iran. Out of necessity, almost. Out of necessity, Mm. I mean, one of the things that you really struggled with and observed when you first arrived in Iran at that time in your early 20s was the restrictions around the movement and behaviour of women. What were some of the things that really struck you early and how did you negotiate that, particularly as a female journalist? I would say the biggest way that it affected me, and I think many young women, you know, of that time, was how unpredictable the kind of monitoring or enforcement of these regulations was. And I think unpredictability is a very hard thing to live with because if, you know, 80% of the time you're fine kind of looking like this with sleeves that come up, you know, a few inches above your wrist and you're kind of fine with something that has, you know, six buttons rather than eight buttons. Uh, But then 20% of the time, like maybe you're running for an exam or maybe you're running for the boss or you're trying to go for an appointment, some kind of vicious gatekeeper to something decides because he wants to exert his male power over you and use his discretion to block you, then you are obstructed. And powerless. And powerless. Tell me about the morality police. This is back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Late 90s, early 2000s. So um, they would drive these white vans and go around uh, the city and sometimes they would set up or maybe it wasn't even morality police, but it would be these kind of vigilantes would set up checkpoints on the kind of roads that would go up to uh, big parks where young people would gather in the evenings on, on a Thursday or Friday evening. And it was all very random. Again, the thing about unpredictability, like sometimes in a completely ordinary 2 p.m. afternoon day in a busy part of town, one of these vans would roll up and start harassing women. Your sleeves are too short, get in the van. I was always really terrified when that happened. But young women who had grown up 
in Iran, like me, they were tremendous. Like so often they just fended it off. They would shout the guy down or push the woman off. And then the crowd would get angry and be like, leave her alone. And so so they lurked and they, they were always kind of dimly there or they would raid houses if there were parties. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where the corruption would come in because if you just paid them off, they would go. So they were this sort of specter in those days. And I think the unpredictability of that... Added to their power. Added to their power. Mm. At around this time... 9-11 happened, which completely changed the way that the region was viewed internationally, the relationship of Arab countries with the United States, which obviously impacted on Iran also. Um, Iran was suddenly brought into the axis of evil. What impact did that have on your life then? So that designation of Iran as part of this axis of evil and then all of the tumult around Iran, so the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, the Iraq war, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, the Iranian state began to feel deeply unsettled. It became very paranoid about relations that Iranians had with outsiders because it began to imagine national security threats everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And part of that, I think, was real. So it entrenched this deep securitization of a lot of public life, so civil society, women's activism, journalism, a lot of work and connections that had been tolerated largely suddenly became scrutinized and seen through this lens of, you know, are we next? So for me, as a reporter, it became very fraught um, eventually, and, and I ended up taking some time out for a while and then ended up kind of leaving permanently in 2007. One of the times that you went back to Iran was in 2005 to report on the presidential elections. And at that point, you had to re-establish connections with a state minder that had been your uh, semi-constant companion since you first moved to the region, a guy who you call Mr X. Tell me about him and what he did in your life. So Mr. X was an official. He worked for the Ministry of Intelligence and he kept in touch with me on and off over the years to ask what I was working on, who I was seeing. Um, It was a sort of keeping of tabs. I think the Iranian security services were very keen to understand the role that journalists played in this atmosphere where they felt themselves a target of potential destabilization by the United States. I was also working for a US publication. You almost, you know, he saw you as almost having a kind of potential propaganda part to play, like you could actually be writing about a new Iran or a more progressive Iran or something, which of course, you know, wasn't part of your reporting always. But, um, you know, with hindsight, We were very much often inclined to write those negative stories because that's what would get on the front page. So, you know, stories in which Iran was shining or really was at the forefront of assisted reproduction and it had become this hub of of assisted reproduction in in the region. Things like that were not guaranteed to get you the play that you wanted. Um, But repressive culture would. Repressive culture always would. Mm. Something else super significant happened at around that time, and that was that you met your husband. How did that come about? We met through friends and found each other like-minded in that we had both spent, well, I'd grown up outside of Iran, and we both had sort of returned after a whole life or a big stint of life, you know, outside. I think both wanted to stay and, and live there. 
it was one of those thinking that this person is, you know, just like you in the flush of a moment kind of things. <laughs> you decided quite unconventionally to live together in Tehran before you married. How was that received by your families and how did you have to play that with society more broadly? My family was not pleased. My mother was mortified, very disapproving. And, you know, she said, you know, in the end, you know, everyone's still quite traditional and you will be viewed a certain way and this does not work to your advantage in any way. I think his family were sort of sanguine about it. So we got by, I mean, and, and I think wider society, you know, in our circle, it was it was acceptable. So it was... Uh, you had to keep it secret, didn't yes, you? Yes, yeah. Then uh, your marriage was hurried along a little bit by the discovery of your first pregnancy, but it wasn't straightforward, was it, the path to marriage? So the thing that I remember was the biggest issue was that you had to have your father's permission to get married, I mean, my father was in California and he had not been back to Iran in 30 years since the revolution and had no intention of coming back. I sort of rang him up saying, uh, I kind of need your help because legally there's no other way around this. Your husband didn't need his parents' permission, did he? No, no. And, and it was, you know, and the feminists in Iran were absolutely livid about this. I mean, in, in parts of the region, it's much more severe. Like you have a guardian and that guardian is your legal keeper in lots of ways. In Iran, it, it kind of comes in at certain points like marriage or permission to leave the country if you're married. You have to negotiate that with your husband and then have it stamped into your passport. So we had to get my father to give permission to my uncle and then we did some fudging of some paperwork so that he signed on his behalf and then in the end it was done. Well, you had a, a lovely wedding by all accounts and not long after your son was born... But your son was only three months old when you had a conversation with Mr X, which changed your lives at that point. What did he tell you? He was very ominous. He said, you know, the time is not good right now. We don't really see or approve of you writing at this point. Um, and we're sending your file over to the judiciary, which was a kind of veiled threat that there might be some sort of prosecution in mind. Perhaps in retrospect, sometimes I think, was it coded? Was it just sort of a bluff that sort of meant, put your head in, don't write for six or seven months, it'll be okay. But when you have a small child, you're, I think, quite skittish. And you have a very protective instinct as well. You know, you don't want to do anything that's going to involve your child's mother getting imprisoned or... Yeah, exactly. And again, back to unpredictability. I mean, maybe it was more than that. You don't know. So we decided to leave. But it was also a very difficult time in Iran anyway. You know, the Ahmadinejad era brought and wrought a lot of damage to Iranian society. So we moved to London, mm. packed up and left. What's your relationship with Iran now? It's just one of complete longing because I don't go back and I haven't gone back in a long time. Because um, you can't? Well, I think that for a time it was people like me, dual nationals, tended not to go because it was just very fraught. And there were dual nationals who would be detained and it seemed like it was, again, unpredictable. You know, if you were a journalist and, and wrote prominently, you know, it seemed like you might end up in, in a situation like that. And then for a time, I couldn't go because I didn't have my Iranian divorce sorted out. And so I didn't have exit permission in my Iranian passport. 
there were points at which I thought, I think actually I can go because I sort of missed out on the whole 2009 uprising. Mm-hmm. I didn't report you on it. Kids. I had little kids. So in a way, I was sort of lucky. I was, you know, I was really resentful at the time. I'm like, oh, look, like major story. And of course, I have babies. They ruin everything. They ruin <laughs> everything. They ruin the Arab Spring for me, too. It's my first baby. <laughs> So I sat out these big contentious stories that a lot of reporters, I think, got into trouble for covering. So I was really hoping, well, so at least I can kind of skip over these big fraught kind of moments of coverage that that created trouble for certain journalists. Can you imagine going back and living there with your kids at any point in the future? Or is that just not going to be part of your life? Uh, well, I think my kids will have to finish their educations um, abroad. So once they're at uni, I will go back and then kind of divide my time between Iran and the UK. What's your relationship with Islam? A long and varied one. So I was quite resistant to Islam when my mother became much more practicing, uh, as she did um, in her midlife, and thought that it was um, too many strictures and I kind of resented it because she became so religious or spiritual that I felt like it took her away from me a bit. That sort of lodged itself in my heart for a while. And then kind of, then I think I had for years like a very intellectual relationship with it. Like I could write about it and critique it and deal with it, you know, in terms of, um, you know, let's break down Islamic feminism versus secular feminism. And it became a kind of part of my... Intellectual life. Intellectual life. Mm. I dealt with it that way. And then... When I began researching the last book that I did, which was about women and ISIS, and, and I ended up talking to, having to think about a lot of people who were, well, men entirely religious or believe themselves to, you know, be bringing religion into their actions. I just spent a lot more time around Islam. Mm-hmm. I was in mosques a lot. I was with religious people a lot. I behaved and, and kept to their manners and their practices. And prayed a lot, and it came back to me in in a way that I'm really profoundly grateful to. So, you know, perhaps I'm going through that kind of cliched process where, you know, in your midlife you come back to these spiritual questions, but it certainly, I think, has anchored me and given me a great deal of sustenance at a time when I needed it. What kind of old age do you hope for? Well, when I imagine it, I'd like to be sitting in Iran, in a garden, reading, and kind of away from the world. You know, I hope that Iran by that point is, you know, safe and that it's a place where I can be. I would like to be able to finally give back in Iran. You know, I teach journalism in London. I mentor young people. I feel like I've never had the chance to do all of that for my own country. So I sort of see being older as a time where I can go back and contribute some of myself to younger generations there. Well, as a day Malvani, I really hope that you get to do that one day in the future. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Azadeh Moavani appeared at All About Women to discuss her book about young women radicalised by ISIS. Follow the link in the show notes to a super thoughtful and sensitive conversation that challenges the stereotype of the ISIS bride. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Ideas at the House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.